Who are the ad watchers? We are attorneys at the National Advertising Division of BBB National Programs, a team with 50 years of experience investigating and resolving disputes over the accuracy of national advertising campaigns. We don't just take ads at face value, we put them to the test. Why? Because advertising law can be simple, but it's the execution that's hard. Hello, and welcome to episode six of season three of Ad Watchers. Now, friends, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The good news first. Today, we're going to learn about a link in the chain of advertising self-regulation that I think is a bit of a mystery to many advertisers and advertising attorneys, including even those who regularly participate in NAD proceedings. This important entity that we're going to talk about is the National Advertising Review Board, more commonly known simply as the NARB. We're going to discuss who makes up the NARB and the NARB's role in process. And in doing so, we're going to continue our exploration and explanation of the various entities that make up the advertising self-regulatory ecosystem, which, along with providing guidance for substantiating specific types of claims, has been our objective for this third season of Ad Watchers. This topic is also of particular relevance to my co-host Annie, who in addition to being the Assistant Director of NAD, is also the Deputy Director of NARB. But unfortunately, Annie couldn't make this podcast recording due to a family matter. So the bad news today is that you won't be hearing from Annie on this episode. But there is more good news. The good news is that you won't be left listening to only me on this episode either. To help us learn more about the NARB and the important role it plays in self-regulation, we've recruited an all-star lineup of guests associated with the NARB to tell us all about it. Joining me today is Ken Plevin, the current chair of the NARB, a position he has held for over four years and which he assumed after a distinguished career in private practice in which he came to be recognized as an expert in advertising and trademark law. Heather Hipsley, who is the current deputy chair of the NARB, also joins us. Heather assumed her position as deputy chair of NARB following an accomplished career at the Federal Trade Commission, during which she managed several well-known FTC enforcement actions and policy initiatives of national significance. Rounding out my list of noteworthy guests is Savita Denai, who is the NARB manager at BBB National Programs and who manages NARB proceedings and is universally acknowledged as indispensable for keeping NARB proceedings on track and ensuring that NARB procedures are adhered to. Thanks to all of you for joining me today. Ken, I'd like to begin at a high level before we get into specifics about the NARB. Can you give us a general overview just about what the NARB is and its role in advertising self-regulation? Sure, sure, Dan, uh, be happy to. Industry self-regulation dates back, I think it's now 52 years when NAD was created. And in fact, in the original understanding of how the system would work, the NARB, the appeal aspect, was created at the same time. So let's just very briefly recall that this is a voluntary process. It's informal, 
and it's voluntary. And so how is it that an advertiser who is told that, you know, NAD is investigating their advertising claims, what's their incentive to participate? Well, there are a number of them, including you get it, you know, it's less expensive than being sued in court, right? And nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to necessarily have the Federal Trade Commission uh, looking into what they're doing. So the, the, the sort of carrot stick here is if you don't agree to participate, then the file will, in fact, get sent to a governmental agency, usually the Federal Trade Commission. But I, I think we all believe that one aspect that encourages advertisers to participate is the fact that if they are not satisfied with a decision that's issued by the NAD, by the way, a group 100% of experienced lawyers, they have an opportunity to consider taking an appeal. And that appeal, this is what NARB does, that appeal goes to a board of non-lawyers, right? Highly experienced industry participants. And invariably, I mean, once in a while, those participants have law degrees, but they're not practicing lawyers. And so it's what Lee Peeler, who well-known in industry self-regulation, used to refer to as a trial by their peers. So the advertiser who's unhappy with the decision has a right to get that decision reviewed by non-lawyers, but highly experienced industry participants. And we believe that's part of the incentive that advertisers when they think through, am I going to participate, say, well, I'm going to get a fair, you know, a fair review by those lawyers at NAD. And if I'm unhappy with that, I can then ask my colleagues in effect in the industry to tell me whether what I'm doing is right or wrong or defensible. Right. So I think that's a quick overview of of what NARB is all about. Wonderful. And so how many, about how many of those NARB members are there? And how are they selected? What's that process consist of? Sure. So that we have 85 panel pool members, 12 are public members, 41 advertiser members, and 32 agency members. Each year, the NARB solicits new panel pool members by reaching out to four trade associations who helped form advertising self-regulation. And they are the ANA, AAF, four A's, and the Interactive Advertising Bureau, the IAB. As Ken mentioned, these members are typically not attorneys, although some attorneys have served as panel pool members. The public members are usually advertising and communications professors, and the rest of the members are ad agency and marketing executives. The DEIB and geographic diversity are of utmost importance, so we do impress upon the associations to keep this in mind when submitting nominees. Now, the nominees can serve a maximum of three two-year terms, with a term starting on January 1st of the following year. The rules of procedure provide that on each panel, typical panel has five members, and It is supposed to consist of one public interest representative. Again, that's typically a professor at a university teaching marketing or advertising law. 
and then three uh, advertiser representatives. Those are from, you know, consumer products companies typically, and then one representative who works at an advertising agency. So there's a degree of diversity on the panel. Great, thanks. So NARB involvement with NAD decisions is becoming more regular than it had been in prior years. But still, I think one reason many attorneys and advertisers still don't know much about the NARB is because despite that perhaps increasing participation, the NARB is still not involved in the vast majority of NAD decisions. About how many cases come before the NARB each year recently? We run from, I'm going to say, 10 panels a year at a minimum to 17 maximum. Now, the interesting part of this is, as best I can tell from looking at the data, that it represents approximately 35% of cases that an advertiser could appeal. Now, of course, if the advertiser is successful at the NAD, there's no appeal, right? And so I would suggest that this is a strength of the system because what it shows is that a reasonable number of advertisers take advantage of the possibility of an appeal. That was set, not with, however, still well more than 50%, like 70, 75%, 70% of the decisions by the NAD are accepted by the advertiser. So it's a strength in both sides of it. Both A, it's there and it's used. On the other hand, NAD typically has their decision accepted. Now, of course, if an advertiser successfully shows substantiation for its claims, it's not going to appeal the decision. But there is a route for challengers to appeal decisions they disagree with also, isn't there? The question, Dan, you're asking relates to an appeal by a challenger. And let's take a typical case. Let's suppose the challenger has challenged five advertising claims by the advertiser. But let's just say the NAD says one of the claims is properly supported and four of them are not. Now, the advertiser chooses to appeal two of the four. They say, okay, we'll accept NAD's decision on two of them, but we disagree on two. The challenger has a right to cross appeal in every case. If there is a possibility for a cross appeal, the advertiser challenger can say, well, if you're going to appeal, we're going to appeal the NAD's decision that said one of your five claims was properly supported. All right, that's straightforward. However, if the advertiser does not take an appeal, the challenger can petition to appeal to the chair or the vice chair. And then the decision is based on our view that there is a substantial likelihood NARB reaches a different result. Okay. So we know both the advertiser and the challenger have routes of appeal, although they're a bit different. Now let's talk a little bit about what exactly can be appealed. And and for that, I want to bring in Heather a little bit. So Heather, are appeals limited to only NED's determination of an advertiser's support for its claims? So first, you know, one thing I was thinking as I was listening, 
for an appeal to the panel that we described, the five-person panel of your peers, if you will, it has to be on the merits of the decision by the National Advertising Division. So as Ken has gone through, there's a route for the advertiser and the challenger. And just to emphasize, that is a re-look, a new look by your panel of peers. So they don't have any deference to what the NAD decided. And it starts anew with the same information that NAD used to make a decision, but they re-examine the advertising and make a decision themselves if they agree or not with what happened. Now, if an appeal is taken on the merits, there is a route for both the advertiser and the challenger to basically object that something happened below either with the NAD procedures that weren't followed. There's written very good directions, <laughs> detailed directions that the parties and the advertising attorneys at NAD follow. And if those procedures are not followed, the advertiser or challenger can, can object and raise that as an issue. And the other main reason they might raise an issue other than the actual advertising is jurisdictional. NAD has procedures about when they will actually take a case. For example, if the advertising is already being litigated in a different forum or a federal agency is already investigating, the NAD will not look at the advertising. So either party can bring that non-merits, we call it a non-merits appeal, to the attention of either Ken or myself, the chair and vice chair, decide the issues for a non-merits appeal. That does not go to the panel of peers. So that occurs very early in the process. We look at the challenge by either the advertiser or challenger to a non-merits issue. Let's say jurisdiction. They feel that the advertising was not properly something that should have gone to the NAD. And here, the big takeaway, I think, is that it has to be clear error at the National Advertising Division for any decision on Ken or I's part that would differ. So that's an extremely high bar. So it's pretty rare that a non-merits problem is really going to change the course of an appeal because of the clear error standard. That's, that's pretty high. So it has to be something very blatant that went wrong below. But there is an opportunity to correct that. Got it. So the first party that usually hears about an appeal is, is NAD because the advertiser will usually in the course of their advertiser statement state that they are opting to appeal one or all of NAD's recommendations to the NARB. Also, the challenger may notify NAD of an appeal after receiving the decision. In those circumstances, Savita, you're the first one who gets kind of told about the appeal and initiates the appeal process. Can you tell us a little bit about what that involves? 
I will send out an initiation letter that briefly details the entire appeals process. And this letter basically includes invoicing, compiling the NAD case materials into one case record, and scheduling for filing brief submissions through our online portal, the hearing date, the pre-hearing meetings, and for submission due dates for any planned presentation materials, which the NARB staff has to review three days before the hearing date to ensure that no information has been included outside of the case record. And lastly, selecting five uh, eligible panelists from our pool of panel members to serve, three if it's a swift appeal. And these folks are usually selected at random, but are also reviewed, ensuring that they do not have any conflicts of interest based on the case on appeal. Great. And obviously all NARB appeal hearings were virtual during COVID. Are, are all appeals still virtual or are they occurring in person yet? Appeals are still virtual. The five selected panel members will meet with the panel advisor, either Ken or Heather. They will also meet with Mary Engel, who is the Executive Vice President of Policy at BBB National Programs, and myself to go over the logistics and the case. Okay, and then it's the moment of truth, right? (laughs) Repeal is happening. So what happens at this point? I have to say it runs very smoothly because of the pre-work that Savita does, making sure everyone's computers work and everyone understands the logistics. And so then the hearing itself, again, follows the procedures, which allows for a, a specific amount of time for the advertiser to make a presentation, typically a PowerPoint, and then allows time for questions by the panel after the advertiser presents. And then it switches to the challenger. The challenger makes their presentation, typically with the PowerPoint. And then again, the panel can ask questions. And I can't remember if we mentioned this, but the chair of the panel during the hearing is the public member. So typically the professors from the school, there's a professor who's part of the panel and they're provided the information about the amount of time the advertiser and challenger has, the amount of the breaks in between for questions by the panelists. And so they keep it running very smoothly. So the panelists ask their questions and then there's time for both the advertiser and challenger to have rebuttal. And then again, another round of questions by the panel. And it works extremely well. The Public members do a very good job of being the master of ceremonies for the hearing, if you will. And the virtual hearings, I think, have been very successful. For one thing, we can really have a diverse panel participate because they don't have to travel. So it allows a professor who's off in California or one of the advertising executives who may not have time to come to New York, but they do have time to devote to studying for the case and and the hearing day, they're available. So I think it's actually gone pretty smoothly, Um, but Ken has the experience from the pre-virtual days. So I'm sure there's some pros and cons. (laughs) Okay, so at this point now, the panel has heard 
the party's arguments and they go off and they review and they make their decision. What can you tell us about that process? Well, right after the hearing, there's a little break, the virtual hearing again, and then the panel gets back on a Zoom call with either Ken or myself, and they discuss the case amongst themselves, deliberate right then and there while it's fresh in their mind, what's just been presented to them. And within that time of that executive session, if you will, they try to come to a consensus what they want to do. And generally, it takes one session. Once in a while, if the case is very complex, they may want to digest more of the information that they've received, and they'll schedule a second time to get together. But it's done very quickly. And typically, I would say, Ken and I, then we take notes while they're making their discussion and we capture their views and their decision in a draft. And we provide that back to the panel and they edit and get back to us. And really all that happens quite quickly within a day or two, three days of the hearing. We usually have a decision that's ready to be sent to the parties for review. So then from initiation of the appeal or notice of the appeal to receipt of NARB's decision, how long approximately on average does that take? Each side gets, first they have to get the record on appeal before the briefing starts. And then we give them, the, the rules say they get two, each get 10 business days to file their briefs. There's almost never been a case where they didn't ask for more time. We push very hard to get these hearings done. I think you're typically running from the time we receive the advertiser's statement until a decision is forwarded to the advertiser for its review and then its advertiser statement somewhere in the range of two and a half to three months. Savita, does that sound right? That is absolutely correct. Okay. So then, Ken, after NARB has issued its decision, the advertiser provides an ad statement. What other sort of post-decision activities might be involved with respect to the advertiser or its compliance with, with NARB's decision? Well, it's a rare case, but it does happen. The advertiser has a right to say, we will not accept a decision. In that case, the full case file is forwarded to a governmental agency, typically the Federal Trade Commission. And Heather might want to comment. She was at the Federal Trade Commission for 30 years. The FTC staff follows up. Uh, Heather, you want to comment on that? Well, yeah, I mean, the... FTC does follow up on every single referral to the advertising division within the Federal Trade Commission. And actually, their decision about what to do with that referrals are now on their website and recorded. So if the advertising division conjoles, let's say, the advertiser into 
deciding, well, maybe it wasn't such a good idea to say we wouldn't follow the decision of NARB. Uh, that is documented typically in a letter that is from the head of the advertising division, the staff lead, and acknowledging that the advertiser changed their mind and decided to come into compliance with the decision. That actually happens quite a bit um, with a little work by the Federal Trade Commission, basically verifying that the NARB's analysis was similar to what the governmental organization would also decide. Or sometimes they'll just drop the ad that was a problem. And that also is reflected in a letter back from the staff at the FTC to the advertiser. And once in a while, if they refuse, the FTC will investigate independently. And if they agree with what had happened at the self regulatory process, they'll bring a case and that will then put the advertiser under an order to do what they didn't do in the self-reg process. Pretty rare because I have to say the self-regulatory work is very successful and really takes care of these issues. So if the advertiser agrees to comply, but let's say they don't, and the challenger files a compliance or requests a, a compliance uh, action. Is that handled by NARB or would that go back to NAD? Dan, so the situation we're talking about is the advertiser has said, we will comply. And then they change the ads. And the challenger, of course, is monitoring very carefully the changes. And then the challenger decides, yeah, they didn't really change it enough or they didn't take the recommendations and implement them the way the challenger believes they should have. There is a procedure and it can be done by, now we could be talking NAD or NARB on their own, can go and look and see what's happening. As a practical matter at the level of the NARB, we we don't go and monitor. We let the challenger come to us and say, look into this. And if we get a request from the challenger for what we call it a compliance review, we will invariably send the letter we get or the email, whatever the form of communication, to the advertiser and say, please respond and tell us whether you believe you're in compliance. What have you done and what respond to this letter? And then we assess. Uh, now we, <laughs> this is now Heather or me right? We make the decision. We are not reinventing the wheel, so to speak. Our job is to read what the recommendations are in the NARB decision and tell the advertiser whether we think they're in compliance. And usually, very often, we will write back to the advertiser with an analysis that says, you're not quite there. Please agree to make more changes. And then they invariably say, okay, and then they'll make more changes. If they say no, then we, we send it to the Federal Trade Commission. I mean, that's our remedy. Now, you asked the question, does it go to NAD or NARB? If there is an NARB decision, then it goes to Heather or me for that analysis. But it always starts with NAD, and NAD reviews it to see whether it's within the scope of what NAD said, 
separately and apart from what NARB said. NAD will forward its the file to the NARB, that would be Heather or me, with their recommendations on what they believe the right outcome is on the, on the compliance analysis. Got it. So the post-decision process and options for NARB sound like they're very much like the post-decision process and options that NAD has after an NAD decision based on the advertiser's decision to either comply with the decision or not. Just to wrap things up, I'd like to ask all of you, particularly you, Ken, since you've been the chair for several years now, if there's any changes you've seen during your time with NARB in the NARB process or NARB's role? Sure. I'll start it off. I think we've covered a number of these. First of all, of course, is virtual hearings. And Heather has already talked about some of the positives and negatives. I think sometimes the lawyers will come to us and say, you know, we would love to have a face-to-face. We think it's we can make a better argument if we're sitting in the same room. But there are significant benefits from virtual hearings. Heather mentioned our ability to recruit panelists from around the country and therefore have greater diversity of panelists. The other advantage from the advertiser's point of view is, and the challenger, the parties, is clearly less expensive in terms of the cost of the proceeding. And second of all, we get as many as 20, 25 participants, meaning that the advertiser or the challenger, the parties, can have executives, right, scientists, technical people from all over the world participate and listen in and sometimes speak. And so that's a significant advantage of the virtual hearing. I think I've already covered this. We have had clear direction from the board of the national partners that we are to do what we can to speed up the process. And the reason is, you know, know, it happens to be a fact that some advertisers, it is believed, will take an appeal simply to get more time running an ad that they know eventually they're going to have to stop running. And so we do what we can to keep that process shorter. Now, my personal view is many, many, most of the challenges are taken in good faith. But once in a while, you look at it and say, that's just, that's just delay. Well, that's part of the system. I think a couple of the other, and again, Heather covered this, non-merits appeals. That did not exist until about three years ago. And those appeals go to the chair or the vice chair. And that was a good step forward because, frankly, those non-lawyer advertising executives had no interest in trying to determine if NAD had properly applied its own rules. That's just not something as non-lawyers they had any particular interest in. And now it's being decided by Heather or me. It's a much better process. They are excellent, uniformly excellent in deciding the question of proper substantiation and whether an advertising is claim is misleading. But they have no interest in things that we call, we lawyers call jurisdictional issues or procedural issues. And, and I think the other thing is, this is a little more subtle, there are some procedural issues where Heather and I will now give the party some guidance as to how we decided it with written opinions. Whereas previously, it might have been 
granted or denied. And so we think that's that's helpful to the parties to know that if they've made an argument, for example, there are disputes over whether something in a brief goes trying to add new evidence. And so the opposing party will move to strike something from a brief. Historically, maybe they would just get granted or denied. Now we try to explain the basis of the decision. I think it gives the lawyers more confidence that we're we're paying attention and taking their argument seriously, even if their position is rejected. Those are the, I would say those are the my comments on what I see as changes over the last four and a half years. Wonderful. I, I would agree with that. I think that Ken leads by example, and I've tried to follow it, that the speed by which we're getting these decisions completed continues to improve. And the panels understand, again, I think with the virtual, because they're not traveling, they can make their decision more expeditiously, which allows us to write it up for them in a quicker fashion. The panels are not traveling, and so they're able to focus on what they want to do, let us know, we can write it up, get it back to them, turn it around. And it it's really going pretty efficiently. I would add when Ken says we don't want the delay to be in bad faith, and I agree that's extremely rare, but one way we've made sure that that is not really what's going on is we ask both the challenger and advertiser if they want the briefing schedule to be extended, we ask the advertiser to reach out to the challenger and come up with a joint briefing schedule. This ensures, I think, from Ken and I's standpoint, that the challenger is in agreement with the pace. And so it's not something where the advertiser is delaying or trying to delay the proceeding. And then we also don't get in the middle of that tussle between the advertiser and challenger. And they, they figure it out and work out their schedule. And what Ken and I try to do with Savita's terrific assistance is make sure that the hearing date is set before the briefing extensions are provided. Again, to try to move the process along and not have it drag out. And I think that's also been very successful, just our informal procedure, if you will, making sure we have a hearing date before we give the briefing extensions. Great. Well, NARB and NAD clearly share a common objective in improving speed and efficiency. I want to thank all of you, Ken, Heather, and Savita, for joining me today. I think you've given our listeners a better understanding of the NARB and its role in advertising self-regulation. I also want to thank our listeners for downloading or streaming our episodes this year because, sadly, this is the last AdWatchers episode of Season 3. But don't fret. Keep in mind the prior AdWatchers episodes are available wherever you obtain this one. So you can always go back and listen to episodes you may have missed from this season as well as Seasons 1 and 2. And although this is our last planned episode of Season 3... Keep checking the NAD website periodically or wherever you obtain this episode, since who knows, we might have a bonus episode or two if there is a topic that we just can't wait until the beginning of season four to discuss. But until that time, it's so long for now. 
Bye, everyone. Goodbye. Thanks, Dan. Thank you.